This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Okay, descend with the view, ascend with the conduct. I feel slightly awed by that image of Padmasambha looking straight at me. Get it right, he seems to be saying. (laughs) I'll do my best. So my understanding of this teaching is that in a way it's not saying a whole lot more than what Sangharachita said um, in terms of translating the Noble Eightfold Path into vision and transformation. So I'm going to assume you're vaguely familiar with the Noble Eightfold Path, one of the main descriptions of the Buddhist path. We have perfect vision, emotion, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness and samadhi. And Sangharachita very usefully um, lost this in terms of the path of vision and the path of transformation. All of these seven stages of the path being the path of transformation. And my understanding is that um, we can equate the path of vision to what Padmasambhava is talking about in terms of view, descend with the view, which means perfecting the part, perfecting vision, whilst ascending with the conduct is equivalent to enacting all the remaining seven stages of the Eightfold Path. But he throws in this something a little bit extra. He says, descend with the view, ascend with the conduct, which I find interesting. So just sticking with this model for the time being, um, there's just another little um, tweak to the Eightfold Path, which I think is significant. And that is the division of the Eightfold Path into the mundane and the transcendental Eightfold Path. So the idea is you have, you embark on the mundane Eightfold Path, the mundane path of vision, the mundane path of transformation. Then we have the point of insight and you embark on the transcendental path of vision, you ex- or you experience transcendental vision. And it's that that gets you embarked on the transcendental path of transformation. Very linear list. And of course, I don't presume it really happens like that. What actually happens, it seems to me, well, it's not just me, I think this is what happens, is something or other brings you along to the Buddhist center. Something or other gets you interested in the Dharma. We have an initial vision. We have an initial vision of how we could be, of um, our potential. There must be more to life than this. That gets us interested. We start learning a little bit about Buddhism. We start learning about the ideas of, of Buddhism, the way that the Buddha described the world, described ourselves. And we start learning about the practices. So that sort of fleshes out this initial vision we had. And we start applying those practices. 
So we start transforming ourselves. And then that process goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. And then during that process, we have little moments of vision, little moments where we, in a way, the, the transcendental vision starts dripping through, and it starts informing our vision. And so this, this whole process is going on and on and on all the time, I think mostly mundane and then we have little moments where we sort of um, traverse a bit of the transcendental path if you like. But I suspect for most of us we are kept going by the, the shraddha, the, the faith that we gain both that we sort of are connected with through coming along to Buddhist Centre and those bits of experience, those bits of insight that um, inform us. And as we enter more and more onto the transcendental path, as we gain more and more um, connection with transcendental vision, so the work really begins. That's when the work really begins, when we start transforming the whole of ourselves in line with, with, with that highest vision. So th these are the words of Bhante. He says, ascend to wisdom. We ascend to wisdom and then descend from that wisdom in the sense that the wisdom manifests at successively, as it were, lower levels of your being until it eventually informs everything that you do and everything that you say. So there's Bhante using this language of ascending to open ourselves up to this path of, of vision and then letting that vision spread out into every aspect of our life. That's the transcendental path of, of transformation. As it were, insight, vision comes cheap. The hard work is really making that um, transform the rest of our life. So what I'd like to do is um, look first of all at ascending with the conduct and then descending with the view and then looking at what happens if we aren't getting those two things in balance. Because really what this teaching is about is bringing both those movements together, the ascension and the descension, bringing them both together for a balanced path. So starting out, ascending with the conduct. As I say, this is the path of transformation based on our experience of vision, whatever we've got. And so, of course, this is the whole range of practices that we've been given. And we've got the whole range of um, those seven stages of the Eightfold Path. We've got um, we've got cultivating positive emotion through metta bhavana and so on. We've got practicing skillful speech, skillful action, taking all of this out into our work. And then we've got the more meditative aspects, the whole realm of the meditation practices we've been given. We've got spiritual friendship, we've got puja, we've got study groups, coming to talks and so on. And so what we can do is develop a confidence that this actually works. And especially through, and I think this is just beginning to sort of slowly get into my thick skull, 
especially through understanding and having trust in karma, that karma works. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we are constantly shaping the being we are becoming. It's not a passive operation. We are constantly shaping ourselves. And if we're constantly shaping ourselves, we can constantly shape ourselves into a higher being. This is the purpose of the path of transformation. We're becoming a higher being. We're developing greater and greater, higher and higher levels of of consciousness. And I feel embarrassed talking about that, which is, I find interesting. I feel a bit embarrassed talking about ascension, talking about becoming higher. And I think that there's a kind of um, relativism that I feel infected with. And speaking to lots of people, I think it's fairly common that the whole language of distinguishing lower from higher, better from worse, is a little bit unpolitically correct. Who's to say? Who's to say that you've got a higher consciousness than me? Who's to say that it's better to be loving than hating. I mean, it's a bit silly when you think of it that way. Um, And I think in part this has come about fairly naturally, even healthily, through a a sort of um, fear of a naive idealism, a fear of a um, what's sometimes called in in, in psychological circles spiritual bypass. You you try and bypass what you're actually feeling by sort of slapping on top of it all these spiritual qualities. And Sangrachita said something like, um, one cannot become who one would like to be by turning a blind eye to who one is. We obviously have to go through the path of transformation, through awareness, through mindfulness, in order to transform ourselves. But I think a little bit of the baby's been thrown out with the bathwater in this For me, anyway, it does feel difficult to talk about becoming a higher being. Here I am talking about it. Let's become higher beings. In a way, there's not a lot for me to say about this stage because I think we're all fairly familiar with it. So let's descend with a view. First of all, I just want to talk about this word view. Um, When I was talking to people about this subject, this talk, I said, what view is that? Because Sangharachita uses the language of view to um, refer to particular conceptual descriptions of Buddhism. Um, He talks about right view as being understanding these um, conceptual aspects of Buddhism as opposed to perfect vision, which is the direct understanding, the direct seeing of those truths. So he talks more about a vision. So I think that this vision is equivalent to what Pamasambra is talking about in terms of view. Descend with the view. So it's not an idea, it's a perspective. It's quite literally a view. Pamasambra, you can just about see, has got, well, this one's got three vultures' feathers. They're rather small vultures' feathers. There we go. He wears a a vulture's feather in his cap because, according to the Tibetans, the vultures are the birds that fly the highest. Padmasambhava's view is a view of Dzogchen, which um, in the Nyingma system is the highest 
stage of their path. They have a nine stage path. And Dzogchen is the highest and it is this view that is a completely panoramic view of the nature of existence, the nature of mind. So, just out of interest, I'll give you a reading of what he's talking about here. Within their tradition, the way that the guru interacts with the disciple is after lots and lots and lots, years and years and years of training, of conduct, of meditation, of visualizing deities. Finally, the master will decide that this disciple is ready to be introduced to the nature of their mind. And he performs what, what they call an, an upadesha, a pointing out. They point out to their disciple directly the nature of their mind. So I'll read you a little bit of, of this story. While the great master Padmasambhava was staying in great rock hermitage at Samye, Sharab Gyalpo of Gnog, an uneducated 61-year-old man who had the highest faith and strong devotion to the master, served him for one year. All this while, Gnog did not ask for any teachings, nor did the master give him any. When, after a year, the master intended to leave, Gnog offered a mandala plate upon which he placed a flower of one ounce of gold. Then he said, Great master, think of me with kindness. First of all, I am uneducated. Second, my intelligence is small. Third, I am old, so my elements are worn down. I beg you to give a teaching to an old man on the verge of death that is simple to understand, can thoroughly cut through doubt, is easy to realize and apply, has an effective view, and will help me in future lives. Sounds good. What did you say? The master pointed his walking staff at the old man's heart and gave this instruction. Listen here, old man. Look into the awakened mind of your own awareness. It has neither form nor color, neither center nor edge. At first, it has no origin, but is empty. Next, it has no dwelling place, but is empty. At the end, it has no destination, but is empty. This emptiness is not made of anything, and is clear and cognizant. When you see this and recognize it, you know your natural face. You understand the nature of things. You have then seen the nature of mind, resolved the basic state of reality, and cut through doubts about topics of knowledge. And so it goes on. So notice how after many years of practice, finally Padmasambhava gives him this instruction, pointing to the essenceless, mysterious nature of mind. This pointing out instruction isn't really um, the language that we use in the FWBO. We obviously talk about the language of shunyata, of emptiness. Um, and very often we, we refer to seeing reality through the doorways of the three lakshanas, 
of impermanence, of insubstantiality and unsatisfactoriness. And I'd like in particular to talk about one of those aspects, which is the aspect of anatta, of, of no fixed selfhood. So I imagine, I think everyone's heard of anatta, you've all heard of the doctrine of no fixed self. The doctrine that says that behind all these processes of body, all these processes of mind, there's no fixed owner, no fixed um, originator of these actions, there's no fixed recipient of all these experiences, no one owning this body, this process of, of bodying. It's a, an abstracted notion that's very useful. It's a very useful notion to keep referring to myself as Vajrapriya and to refer to, to you as having fixed names, but it's an abstracted notion. I think this, and I very often come across this being a bit of a problematic teaching um, because people take it the wrong way. They take it as a, as a teaching of transformation where we have to get rid of this thing. We have to think, okay, I don't have a self, I've got to get rid of it. And then they act all funny if they feel selfish or they, they, they think they can't um, express what they want or this kind of thing. And so I was reflecting about this on, on solitary, trying to get a little bit clearer about what this teaching's saying. And what I did was I wrote a parable to explain it to myself. So I thought I'd tell you a parable. I'll read you a story. I can find it. So in this story, I'll, I'll just give you a little clue. I'm equating the self, I'm, I'm equating that our being the, um, to a village. And I'm equating our sense of self, a fixed sense of self, to a king. And I hope the rest will become clear. Okay. The parable of the serfs. And a serf is, um, actually I don't know what a serf is, but anyway, let's call them a subject, a subject of a king. Okay. Someone who, um, who, whom the king rules. There was once a small village in the countryside which was inhabited largely by farmers who were serfs to a powerful king. The village had always belonged to the king and the villagers were proud of being his subjects. They all knew his laws and tried hard to live according to them even policing themselves and reprimanding other villagers if they saw someone transgressing the laws. One day a traveller arrived in the village. He looked around the village, noticing the well-kept fields and cottages and how everyone was behaving together. He went to stay at the inn and started chatting with the innkeeper. Nice village you've got here, opened the traveller. Oh yes, we take a lot of pride in our village, replied the innkeeper. And I noticed, continued the traveller, there seems to be quite a lot of squabbling going on. Is there something happening? Oh no, only the usual. We have to keep people in line over the king's laws, or else how would we look? How would he look? He'd be very displeased. 
the king? Oh yes, the king. He owns all the land, and we are all his serfs. This king, asked the traveller, what's he like? Well, he's fair but firm. He has to have things just so. He keeps the place in order, and we're very proud of him to be his serfs and to keep his land and village looking so good. And what does he look like, this king? How do we know? Busted the innkeeper. So you've not met him? Of course not. He's the king. So how do you know he exists? Don't be ridiculous. Of course he exists. This is his land and we're his serfs. Yes, yes, you said probe the traveller cautiously. But how do you know this is his land? How do you know that you are his serfs if you have never seen him? An uneasy silence settled on the room. The other people in the inn were listening to the conversation intently. He always has been and he always will be, offered one person rather unconvincingly. The innkeeper was looking confused. Well, how else would all this happen? He gestured around the room vaguely, presumably indicating the village. How would we know what to do? So, how do you know what to do? Well, the king tells us, of course. How else? So, presumably, when he tells you, you see him. No, no, there's some of us who are the king's messengers and the king tells them. So then, they must have seen the king. No, the innkeeper was starting to sound a bit uncomfortable. So, encouraged the traveller, how then do they get the instructions? They just know, snapped the traveller, the innkeeper testily. That's their job. I see. The traveller thought that maybe he should back off a little bit. And this king, you're generally happy to be his serfs? The arrangement works okay? Of course we're happy, said the innkeeper. There are other taxes, of course, mumbled an old farmer, sitting in the corner like a weather-beaten bear. Taxes? Yes, yes, well, of course, said the innkeeper. Half our harvest has to go to the king as a tithe, naturally. Which means, grumbled the farmer, we have to work twice as hard to eat. And, and there's the wars, piped up a young man, growing confident. Every now and then we have to go to war against another village to fight for the king's honour. And, chimed in the woman, warming to the theme, there's his stupid rules. Responding to the traveller's quizzical look, she continued, Well, I mean, some of them are fair enough, but there's so many I can't even begin to list them. About how the village should look, exactly how we should behave, so the other villages think our king is the brightest and most clever and most beautiful, and whereas actually we know that... Her voice trailed off as she caught the disapproving looks of the other villagers. I see, said the traveller. So it's not all a bed of roses then. Don't you think it might be worthwhile to be absolutely sure that this king you're serving really does exist? Say, not 
all giving yourselves a lot of hassle over nothing. Because maybe, just maybe, things are not as they seem. What do you suggest? asked the farmer. Well, I'm interested in those taxes you talked about. So the people who pay the taxes, they must have seen the king. No, said the far farmer a bit thoughtfully. Actually, we, we take the crop and we, we pour it in the river. In the river? You pour it in the river? Why is that? That's just how it is. That's how it's always been. So, let me get this clear. No one has ever seen the king you serve so devotedly. You pay this huge tithe of half of all your crops, but it doesn't reach him. You receive orders that don't come from him. So, how would it be if this king doesn't actually exist? But that's ridiculous, exclaimed the innkeeper. Just because we haven't met him doesn't mean he doesn't exist. That's true. But, if he does exist, you must be able to find him. So why don't you go and look for him? And I can tell you, from my experience, I've travelled far and wide in these areas, in this whole region, and, he paused for effect, I can assure you, there is no king. There was a puzzled silence. So how would anything work without the king? asked the innkeeper in exasperation. How would we keep control? How would we get anything done? Exactly as you do at the moment. The traveller slapped the bar in emphasis. Exactly as you do at the moment. Because there is no king and everything works. Think about it. But our whole purpose is to represent and glorify the king. What would we be if he didn't exist? It'd be nothing. No, it'd be exactly what you are now. A number of people living together on the land. That's what we call a village. That's what you've always been, and that's what you still will be. Only now you can give up this whole idea of representing and glorifying some non-existent king. Just lay down that whole burden and see yourselves for what you simply are. The atmosphere in the inn was electric. You could almost hear everyone thinking through the consequences of this outrageous idea. So then, we wouldn't need to throw half our crop in the river, ventured the farmer. We wouldn't need to work all these stupid hours, and the village would be richer too. No more stupid wars, exclaimed the young man. No more stupid rules, echoed the woman. Well, said the traveller, you'd probably want to decide which rules really served you and served the other villages best, and stick to those. But yes, ditch the rest. So we wouldn't need to keep berating each other and spying on each other. Her voice quivered with relieved emotion. So, what about the land? What about us? Who owns it all? asked the innkeeper. The land is, as the land always was. Just land owned by no one, freely yours to farm and sustain you. And you are free individuals who have the choice whether or not to cooperate for the welfare of the village and the surrounding villages. 
It still doesn't add up. The innkeeper scratched his head. What about the king's messengers? They make all the decisions and the instructions. What do we do with them? Well, on the whole, it sounds like they've been serving you pretty well. But you have to remember that their instructions are not royal will. So weigh up their messages and be very careful if they seem to serve only the king and no one else. The innkeeper finally seemed convinced. Well, if all this is true, then we're rich people. Tonight I declare a free banquet for the whole village in honour of our guest. The morning after the banquet, the traveller prepared to leave. The whole village, who by now had heard this sensational news, gathered to send him off. He turned to them. A final word of advice. It won't all be easy just because you think you don't believe in the king anymore. Old habits die hard. You'll probably still find yourself believing the king's messengers, believing their instructions as if they were from the king. You'll probably still keep berating each other over the old rules there solely for this imaginary king's benefit. You'll probably still find yourself going to war occasionally over the king's honour. Just keep asking yourselves, who are we serving here? And be very patient with each other and be very patient with your neighbours especially because they still think they're serving the king. And with that, accompanied by cheers from the villagers and more than a few tears of gratitude, the traveller walked off in the direction of the next village. So maybe I should say a few words of explanation about that in case it wasn't clear. So yes, we have the village, we have our being composed of, of the land, our body, and all the mental processes, the villagers, the inhabitants, the serfs. So this is, these are the five skandhas, the skanda of Rupa being the body, being the land, and Vedana, Samya, Sanskara, Vijnana being the, uh, the, the serfs, being the, the villagers. I haven't tried to represent all the different skandhas, but in there we've got the king's messengers who are trying to represent the experience of volition, of making choice, of acting, that obviously comes from the king, comes from the self. Where else would it come from? You have this experience of action. And then we have the taxes, we have the crop paid to the, the king that represent the senses, that represent the way that we harvest the sensual world and especially the way that we are so indebted, the way that we invest in the process of harvesting this world. We pay huge taxes to pay for our attachment to sensuality. And of course the king represents this abstracted self, the owner and originator of all experience. And you can probably work out who the traveller is.
So why do I like that image? I like that image because it gives a perspective on what I'm doing in the spiritual life. It's not about berating myself to be a better person. It's about harmonizing, bringing to harmony all these various aspects of myself in order to benefit myself, this village, and all the other villages out there. That's the purpose of it. But why this language of descend, descend with the view? It feels to me as if we're letting some higher vision descend into us. It's not ours. We're sort of borrowing a view from the other side of insight, so to speak. We've been told this particular view of no fixed self. Although I might be able to sort of vaguely understand it, it doesn't feel like it's mine. It's not how I actually see things. So we're letting it sort of percolate down. So how do we do this? How do we descend with the view? Because it's not really the same kind of practice as conduct. It's not really, we don't do it in the same way that we do meditation or ethical practice. And as I say, if people do try to do it, if people try to sort of do the anatta thing, then they start getting into trouble thinking they shouldn't have a self. They feel a self and they think they shouldn't have it. So well, one way of talking about this is the, um, the teaching on the three levels of wisdom. We can start off with a level of wisdom where we hear and read and, and, and we just take in this information. We read about the doctrine of Anatta, for example. We take it in. It's like eating. We take it into, into our mouth. And then there's a second level of reflection. We reflect on it within ourselves, within study groups. We chew it over. And then within meditation, maybe with meditation or maybe outside meditation, but within a sort of more intensive experience, it becomes ourself. We, we, we ingest it over time until it becomes ours. We're slowly converting, in Bhante's language, understanding of view into perfect vision. But the thing is, in order for that to happen, in order to become, um, in order for this vision to become ours, we need to ascend to it. We need to earn it. We need to become a candidate for this insight to arise within ourselves. And this is why we need the, the ascension. And we probably need substantial retreat in order to um, taste true vision. There's something else about this descending with the view. Ascending sounds quite hard work. You have to put in effort to ascend. Whereas descending sounds a lot easier. And it is more the nature of opening up, of relaxing, of letting go, letting something arise, letting something bigger than us descend into us. Um, I won't go into it now, but I do recommend Sabuti's talk on the three myths of the spiritual life. We have the myth of self-development, which is like the ascension with conduct, and the, the myth of, of self-surrender, letting 
the Buddha letting the deity take possession of us and the myth of self-discovery finding the truth within us which seem to correspond to this descending with the view. And the final practice within descending with the view is in a way what I was trying to point to in the meditation. The Tibetans call it finding the target. If we're going to understand this doctrine of anatta properly, we have to understand what is the fixed self that is being denied. What is this idea that the Buddha is saying is only an idea? What is this sense of ourself occupying some space behind my head, in my case, that thinks he's experiencing all this vision from you and who thinks all, this, all these words are coming out from him? We have, it, it, this is quite a good opportunity to do it, actually standing up in front of lots of people. There's a very acute sense of myself standing here. And in any situation, especially when there's strong emotionality involved, you can think, find the target. What do I look like? What's my sense of self like in this moment? How do I experience myself in this moment? We don't pretend it's not there. We don't pretend it's out of existence. So, for example, on, on the last solitary retreat, I was spending quite a lot of time finding the person who thinks that if he meditates enough during the day, he'll be okay. Who thinks that if he has good enough meditation experience to take back with him, he's all right. And who thinks that if he misses a sit, he'll be a terrible person. So... This is where we, we can sort of see to what extent our Dharma practice is actually um, simply taking, a, a, simply reinforcing this sense of a self who wants to feel alright with himself or herself. So I'll, I want to go on now to looking at what happens when these two directions of ascension and descension are out of balance. So initially, what happens when we're doing all this hard work, all this ascending with conduct, doing all this good practice, without having the sight, without being informed by the view, that being informed by this sort of transcendental flavour? And as I hinted just then, um, it's very easy to get stuck in the psychological, in the merely psychological. It's very easy to get stuck trying to be a better person slogging away being a better and better person which isn't bad but it's not enough from the Buddhist perspective so if things go well if you're lucky you can reinforce your sense of self by being a better and better Buddhist and if you're not so lucky you can just get really really dispirited because you're not being as good a Buddhist as you'd like to be because there's no um, end to how much work we can do to become better. The gulf between ourself and Buddhahood, in a way, is unbridgeable. In a certain way, that's unbridgeable at the level of ascension. Um, it's sometimes said, you can't reach enlightenment through karma. There is this chasm between ourselves and enlightenment. 
that can only be bridged through descent, not through ascent. So something that I can find myself doing is um, giving myself a hard time because of my ethical practice. It's like the, the, the mind becomes divided against itself and we just acquire this new dominant self who is the good Buddhist. So we don't want to d divide against ourselves within um, Buddhist practice. We don't want to be left wallowing in our defilements. We don't want to be so caught up with the, the difficulty of spiritual practice that we don't actually notice how completely extraordinary it is that we're conscious at all, that we're alive at all. And that, in fact, this stuff of consciousness is the very stuff of enlightened consciousness. If only we can sort of untangle the knot it's gotten itself into. And just to make a link with the talk I'm going to give on Sunday, um, which will be about demons, precious demons, demons representing those difficult aspects of ourselves. Um, we don't want to get stuck struggling with our demons, wrestling with our demons all our life. They don't define us. We have to have this perspective that we are not defined by them. So anyway, that's one of the main things I wanted to say, that um, the main stuff of our spiritual practice is probably conduct, is probably the path of ascension. But if it's not informed by this higher spiritual vision, then it can get rather hard work and we, we lose that perspective, we lose the, 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 the transcendental perspective on ourselves that actually what we're moving towards is something that's not just a better and better version of ourselves, it's something completely other. What about the other way around? What happens if we are really fond of, of these lofty ideas, these lofty visions, and we don't put in the the legwork to ascend because descending in some ways sounds a bit more appealing I think um, I said it's a bit embarrassing talking about ascent whereas descending has got all these all these nice rich um, connotations from depth psychology of going into our depths and looking at rummaging around in our shadow side and getting in touch with all that stuff I don't think that's really the meaning of descent in this sense. I, I can detect um, my desire for descent, if you like, in my desire for peak spiritual experience, for, for insight experience. I want to go on huge long retreats and meditate my socks off and experience all these bright lights and all that stuff. And when I hear about people doing long retreats, people have been on the three-year retreat or whatever, I must think, God, what have they seen? And, you know, they must be so much further on the path now. Which might well be true, but it kind of makes me question, well, hold on, I've been here for three years doing what I'm doing, and they've been there for three years doing what they're doing. So what does that say about what I think of what I'm doing? Does that mean that I'm not doing good, good spiritual practice here? So there's, 
it's easy to undervalue the um, the slow the, the slow difficult but absolutely essential process of transformation of working with in all the messy situations of life of having to deal creatively with conflict with not getting things your own way having to interact with these strange other people um, and actually there's so much to learn there if we don't feel we're doing that then that's where we can really bring a lot of effort to bear a lot of interest to bear as I said insights come cheap it's the transformation that's the hard work and if I really want to peak experiences I may as well just drop a tab of acid maybe another way that, that we might look at this language of descending without ascending um, more likely is on the tendency a sort of contemporary tendency especially maybe in the states I'm not sure to seeing mindfulness as the whole path we, all we have to do is bring mindfulness into every aspect of our life and that's, that's Buddhism I wish we can bring mindfulness into every aspect of our life that's fantastic I'm absolutely no way devaluing that but mindfulness is not enough it's an eightfold path it's not a, it's not a onefold path and I'll come back to that in a little bit and the final thing I want to say about descending without ascending is um, well are we really descending if we are sort of borrowing this view that's not actually ours it's very easy to misunderstand it and we can easily lose a sense of moral agency if we think you know well there's no there's no sense of there's, there's no me there's just all this action happening and you know who's to say that action is good or bad this is called antinomianism and Padmasambhava was very well acquainted with this he goes on about it over and over and over again so I'll give you a quick taste of what he says when you have no trust in the view of actuality I think that basically means you don't have any real insight into this view but instead regard a verbalized view of assumption as being the ultimate you make statements such as everything is beyond reference point uncreated and free from extremes behaving in such a way that, that confuses virtue and wrongdoing you make claims such as there is no good and evil there is no benefit from virtuous deeds there is no harm from wrongdoing everything is free and the same thus you remain an ordinary person this is called the demonic view of black diffusion <laughs> the demonic view of black diffusion I love that and it is the root of all ways of straying of the view so the thing is the experience of choice remains just, just because the Buddha says there's no fixed self who is the actor so to speak who is the sort of the, the, the origin of all that doesn't mean to say that there isn't an experience of choice it doesn't mean to say that it's not possible to consciously redirect our attention karma still operates 
So this is the, um, the image of the, the king's messengers. The messengers in some way, somehow these choices, these decisions just emanate, they arise. And at the relative level, we have to assume, well, we, we, we see that karma links together our experience through time. So what we need is this view, is this, sorry, union of view and conduct. And Padmasambha's advice, he's constantly trying to balance these to the people he's talking to. Sometimes he's giving very strong advice about going for refuge, renunciation, bodhicitta, and sometimes he's giving these really sublime teachings on this highest view of the nature of mind. And he says, Descend with the view while ascending with the conduct. It is most essential to practice these two as a unity. So we need the conduct to become a candidate for, for the view, for vipassana experience. And the view is the view of a soaring vulture. It's not the view of a little pecking pigeon. And if we can see that view, if we are soaring, and if we've really got that expansive view, then we can fly straight to a, a mountain peak directly. It's, it becomes very straightforward in a way to make that transformation. So what we're looking at here is the union of, if you like, absolute and relative truth. We've got the relative truth on which most early Buddhism takes its stand. The relative truth of a relatively existent self acting, creating karma, skillfully applying effort. Without losing the absolute truth, the view of anatta, of shunyata, and it's this view that if you're reading Mahayana and Vajrayana texts, that's the stand that they mostly take, the stand from the other side of insight. They're sort of trying to talk you across this chasm of insight. And I think we get a, a flavour of this union of conduct and view in one of the, um, the favourite readings which gets um, dragged out whenever people give talks on Padmasambhava the advice to the three fortunate women just before Padmasambhava leaves to the copper coloured mountain so we have Queen Nang Chong who asks him just before he leaves Give me a few words of great import, an effective verse which I can memorize. Though I have not renounced the world, I would like to cherish within me a doctrine which at a later time would lead me to Buddhahood. To this the Guru replied, Listen, Queen Nangcheng. To begin with, pay urgent attention to impermanence. Then strongly turn your mind towards taking refuge and direct your prayers to the lamas. These are the preliminaries without which no means exist. After that, disposing yourself physically to be calm. As in an empty house, the raindrops slowly gather. Relax. Do not force your mind or body. Since the tranquility of shunyata is the foundation, by forcefully turning your mind to emptiness, you chase misconceptions.
in the thoughts which arise, understanding will come without doing anything. Again and yet again, work on whatever estranges you from meditation. Lay bare whatsoever arises, good and bad thoughts alike. The child who knows his way carries along in the path every harmless thing he happens upon and nothing that harms him. During the time of insight, which is surrounded by a calm and gentle aura, openness and appearance are inseparable. The six senses come forth, though appearance and voidness are inseparable. This is the real foundation, without which no means exists. During the period of meditation, there is not anything. It is simply open. But when you waver towards appearances, delusions will arise. After careful examination, understand not to discriminate, to neither accept nor reject. As anything can happen, peace will arise from within. Even when you do not meditate, for personal growth you need to exercise effort. If you do so without accomplishing anything thereby, know that at all times realization is your own nature and from within act for the benefit of all beings. Unceasingly do Dharma actions. When you purify yourself of your thoughts, realization will naturally come from within. Seal your virtuous actions with prayers and a dedication for the purpose of all beings. Without such prayers and dedication, no means exist. Not falling into the errors of excitement or passivity, be filled with confidence. Here, in a few words of great import, lie preparation, enactment and fulfilment. The doctrine's deepest reaches of this life as of the life to come. Thus did he speak, and Queen Nang Chung was led to salvation. That is the end. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.